Now, Dave Kaufman hosts The Kaufman Show with Dave Kaufman, but also Jay Farrar. The Kaufman Show, only on TSN 690. gentlemen boys and girls welcome back it's the kaufman show on tsn 690 dave kaufman jay farrar hi jay now we're going to tell you how we really feel that's right because we we were obviously masking our feelings during yes. game night ot trying to be a little professional bringing some scores a little update of what's happened what did you say my middle day? name was vengeance what did i say my middle name was i guess vengeance, vengeance is my middle name dave vengeance kaufman vengeance thy name is kaufman i um want to play a couple of old interviews so one that's relevant to what we're discussing tonight and one uh just with somebody really awesome who i was thinking about today and i miss baseball so we're going to play that a little later on but we're going to start off the show tonight with uh, an interview that jay and i conducted last august when wade davis ii was named the new executive director of you can play we had the scoop mr farrar i love this interview and it was so much fun he was a blast to speak with and uh wade davis is as you heard patrick burke say on the station today who mentored michael sam Mm -hmm. and uh, helped him with this very public outing which um again is a watershed moment in sports that this uh football player from the university of missouri michael sam has come out of the closet and declared himself eligible for the nfl draft and uh Big days ahead for uh, for sports and for the championing of human rights. Without any further ado, this is our interview, Jay and I, with Wade Davis II, the new executive director of You Can Play, from last August, August 22nd, 2013. It's the Kaufman Show. I'm Dave Kaufman, joined by Jay Farrar. And uh, we're very excited to bring in our next guest. Uh, his name is Wade Davis II, and he is the new executive director of the You Can Play committee which uh, we've had patrick burke on the show he uh, is moving into a less prominent role that you can play he'll still be involved but uh 
as a new director for player safety at the NHL, I guess that's just too many hats at the same time. Um, Wade is uh, an incredibly accomplished uh, supporter of LGBT rights. He's uh, an Obama LGBT surrogate, which I look forward to hearing about. Um, a former NFLer and the uh, co-founder of the You Belong Initiative. Uh, really looking forward to uh, to getting to know Wade Davis. Hello, Wade. Hey, how are you doing today? Good. Welcome to the program, and congratulations on the new position. Thank you so much. And just want to say that Montreal is one of my favorite cities in the entire world. I've been to Montreal a bunch of times. You've got a lot of great clubs out there, a lot of great food. So I'm excited to get back out there and meet you in person. Oh, that's good to hear, man. I uh, can't wait. Uh, you just missed Pride. It was last weekend. but uh, I, didn't, I didn't get an invite. <laughs> <laughs> well, you also didn't have the job at the time, right? So, so, so that means that next year I'm your guy, right? Deal, deal. I will, I will attend right. my first ever Pride Parade uh, next year with you in Montreal. I love it. I love it. And I'll, I'll rock a You Can Play t-shirt. I promise you that. <laughs> there you go. Now, uh, when You Can Play started, um, obviously it started, I mean, with the Burks, and um, it started out of the um, as, as a reaction to do, to do better, really, after, after the death of Patrick's brother. And um, one of the, the mandates of it was um, straight allies standing up for gay athletes. Now, yeah. you're a gay athlete, and, um, well, I mean... Uh, you're retired, but we, we'll still call you an athlete. And yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, how does that does that say something to how much growth you can play has done that there can be uh, a gay man running a straight uh, allies initiative? I think it speaks to the the vision that all the the three co-founders had um, that that they understand that allies are important. But one thing an ally can't do is speak to the lived experience of what it means to be an athlete and to be LGBT. And I think that when Patrick and I spoke at length uh, about me coming on as a new ED, that was one of the things that he really uh, wanted to make sure that, that my voice um, as a person who is LGBT was definitely added. Um, I think that, that the work that the allies have done, like Patrick or Brendan Ambedejo or uh, Chris Cooley, have been amazing. But what's been missing is that, that key person that can speak to the experience. Now, I've had a, a lot of media attention being able to talk about it but to now be the, the head of such an organization like you can, can play really um at my my voice on a different level what is the uh, you belong initiative so you belong in, initiative is something that i created with my co-founder darnell moore um and what it is it's um it's lgbt sports camp so um it'll move through various sports the main sports that we'll work with is basketball hockey softball slash baseball soccer and football and it's an initiative where you get professional athletes to come to a camp and teach young people the nuances of the game, um, but to have it specifically tailored towards LGBT athletes and their straight allies. But within the actual camp itself, there's workshops on everything from youth leadership um, to civic engagement to social justice, how to deal with bullying, um, health and wellness. So it's really an opportunity for young people to leave an, an actual camp being better athletes in the various sports, but also being, being better people. This was a camp that, that Patrick attended. I remember him tweeting about you and the incredible work that you guys were doing. Is that correct? Yes. You Can Play was one of our title sponsors, and um, it was just really a blessing to have Patrick there. And I think the experience that he had and others was really transformative to really see the impact that being around these young kids who really have never had access to professional athletes in such an intimate way had on their lives. We've never spoken before, but to me, this really sounds like the next step, almost as if mandate one of you can play was to make sure that the straight community is on board. And now mandate two is to you know, make that push to show the professional athletes that it's time and that it's that it's OK. Well, you know, and to be fair, um, I, I, I think the one thing that Patrick and I talk about at length is this idea that people often assume that professional athletes aren't ready to step out there and to be allies to LGBT people. And one of our, our goals is to really break down that, that, that misnomer. Because from my experience, like after I came out, so many of my teammates, ex, and guys that I just meet now are uber supportive. You know, when Jason Collins came out, there was so much support from professional athletes that we want to make sure that athletes get a, get a chance to show, hey, that you know what? I can be an ally. I'm not afraid to, to, to speak out of out out about it. So one of our goals is to make sure they're no longer stigmatized to be homophobic. 
I was uh, blown away last week at the uh, tolerance and acceptance shown by the World Wrestling Federation. I thought that was just one of the coolest <laughs> things I'd ever seen. So unexpected. Yeah, you know, again, I just um, it, it makes me a little sad being a former athlete that people think that we're just these Neanderthals, you know, who are just out there running into each other at top speed, who can't put a sentence together, or who can't be accepting of someone who may have a different sexual orientation. It's just, it's just not the case. I don't think that athletes were ever asked, so they never said anything. They they, they just said, hey, if this person is gay, I don't really, really care. Can they play the game? Sure. When you were playing uh, on, on practice squads or in NFL Europe, uh, had you come out yet? No, I actually did not come out until I moved to New York, New York City. Um, I played from 2000 to 2004, and there was just no conversations around what it meant to be gay in, in sports. So um, I was just really afraid that either I would be um, cut from my team and I, w- I was already a journeyman or that my, my teammates didn't accept me. And you think that those, you know, 10 years later, that conversation is over? That's not a fear for the, for, and, and you know, like, I don't want to talk about the, the Peyton Mannings of the world. I'd rather talk about the guys who are on the cusp because for them, it takes a lot more guts than if you're a superstar. Well, you know, like, um, I was actually teaching a workshop today and, and we were talking about ideas of disclosure, right? About someone coming out and saying, hey, I'm a, I'm a gay male. One of the things that I think that we forget is there's still a lot of stigma around what it means to be gay. You know, that most people associate being gay with being soft or something that's less masculine. So um, I, I think some of the issues is that players don't want to be deemed as something that they're not. So I think it's less of players saying that they don't want to come, come out. It's more or less we as a, as a society have a lot of work to do to break down these ideas of masculinity so that players won't be thought of as other and, and not as who they are. We're in conversation with Wade Davis II. He's the new executive direct, director of the You Can Play, and uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Wade underscore Davis 28. Uh, Wade, it says on your Twitter bio that you're an Obama LGBT surrogate. What does that mean? So that means that during the election of, of last year that I spent probably two to three days a week just touring the country speaking about the different ways that President Obama has been supportive of uh, LGBT people. So I would go to fundraisers, go to pride, pride parades, and really just just champion the work that the president has has had done and and is is doing in, in support of LGBT people. What are your thoughts on uh, on what he has done? I think President Obama has been um, has been a a champion of LGBT people pre and and post. Um, I think that oftentimes we assume that the president isn't doing stuff, isn't doing more, but we really haven't taken the time to understand a lot of the, the policies that have been passed that really impact LGBT people. You know, when the president then passed like legislation for equal pay for equal rights, that significantly in, impacts LGBT people and people of color. Um, so I think that if we really understand laws that, that he's passed and how he may not be able to specifically say, hey, this law is for gay or lesbian in terms of person, but if, if you read between the lines, that, that, that you'll see that a lot of the legislation really can impact those individuals. Well, things like uh, don't ask, don't tell being repealed is huge for uh, service members. Well, and things well, like... That, you know, like, like that's clear, right? Like, like everyone knows that when he passes, don't ask, don't, don't tell, or but something like the, um, the Affordable Care Act really impacts LGBT people. How so? Well, so... so Oftentimes, LGBT individuals can can get coverage for their health care. Um, so if if he passes an, an actual law that makes it easier for a person to get health care, maybe be because they live in poverty or they're marginally housed, the Affordable Care Act it, it gives people better access to get care. And it, it just makes it easier and more affordable. One of the things that, that, that struck me as well is um, laws that have been repealed that acknowledge couples so that if one is in the hospital um there's none of that are you a family member bs that that has been the case for so long oh yeah oh yeah well you know and you know in in america um you know to be frank you canadians are further along in in ideas of sexuality and have done a lot more as far as making um gay and lesbian trans individuals feel more accepted and here in a, in america we have a lot further to go to go, but just a, a 
simple thing about knowing that if your partner gets sick, that you can visit them in the hospital and you don't have to lie and say that, that your brother or, or sister is, is a big deal. It's basic human rights issues, and, and this is what uh, this is why we champion You Can Play on our show, because in our minds, this is just a very simple human rights issue. And, uh, uh, you know, a lot of it has to do with, with being raised that, uh, for, you know, you have to be taught to hate, right? Exactly. You know, and it's interesting because, like, one of, one of our goals of You Can Play is to put ourselves out of, out of business, you know. Right. If I'm at, at You Can Play for three years and we no longer have to even have someone disclose that they're LGBT, that they can walk into a locker room, into a grocery store, holding their partner's hand, and it's a non-issue, then I can quit. You know, um, so that's really the, the mission of You Can Play is to put ourselves out of business. Two days on the job and you're already thinking about quitting, Wade? <laughs> no, 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 no. But that's, that's kind of my mindset is, is to work as hard as I can to share stories of individuals who are LGBT, have really open and honest conversations with people who may think that being LGBT is wrong or, or right. And, and by those sharing of stories to change hearts and minds and to move, to, to really erase the, the distance between what we know and what we do. Wade, I'd like to play a hypothetical uh, game with you before we let you go and pretend that you were a winter athlete and not a summer athlete and pretend that you were okay. a little bit younger <laughs> and not the executive director of You Can Play. But Wait, um, wait, wait, wait. I'm 25. Come on now. <laughs> you know what? By Olympic athlete standards, that's downright ancient, isn't it? <laughs> you're 25 and you're the executive director of You Can Play? No, no. The co-founder of You Belong in this. This isn't fair if you're 25. What were you, 15 in the NFL? I'm 36. I'm 36, but I I moisturize a lot, so I look. <laughs> I'm moisturizing right now, actually. <laughs> um, the, the point that I I wanted to make was to you could probably put yourself in the shoes of somebody who's preparing to go to the Olympics, and oh, yeah. under the um, what kind of duress would a, a a gay athlete feel? trying to prepare for the biggest moment of their lives and knowing that they're going to have to deal with this massive off-the-field, off-the-ice, off-the-whatever distraction? I think the biggest thing that I would be facing is really, is trying to understand how I can live. Because if I'm already an out athlete and I have been out for years, the last thing I want to do is go back into the closet is have to hide who I am. So I'm trying in, in my mind to focus on training every day but then trying to understand the risks that involves in going over to, to Russia, you know, trying to take, trying to understand a different ways that I can stay safe over there. And maybe I have a partner who I want, who I, who I want to travel over there with me. Like, like those are really the thoughts that would go through, through my mind. And then also different ways that I can show solidarity with my other LGBT um, uh, athletes and then kind of stand up for myself as well. You know, um, I think something that I think often too is, is what uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos did in the Mexico City Olympics. Like, how can you do something like that that doesn't get you arrested too, as well? You know, so it's a sticky situation, and you can, can play like like one of our main goals is to make sure that that, that athletes understand the risk that's involved in anything that they do over in Russia, but but also take you know specific safety measures to protect themselves. If you had the opportunity to go over there as the um, representative of You Can Play during the Olympics, would you go? Definitely. In a heartbeat. In a, in a heartbeat. Good for you. Awesome. Awesome. Wade Davis, thank you so much for your time tonight. I, uh, I look forward to uh, speaking with you again and, uh, and seeing you next summer in Montreal for Pride. I'll be there before that because I love that city. I love you, gentlemen. Uh, let me know when you uh, when you do get into town and, uh, and we'll go for a beer. I really appreciate your time and uh, all the great work that you do. No problem. Have a good day. Thanks, Wade. Jay, I forgot that he told us he loved us. That was, uh, what a fun interview that well, was. Well, we love him. Yeah, man. That was a really fun interview. And obviously he did not go to uh, Sochi to represent You Can Play. Um, he had more well, important he's, he's got a lot, to do. yeah. He had more Back important here. things to do. And he said uh, he'll see us in Montreal. And I'd imagine that we'll be seeing him in Montreal sooner than later because um, I'd imagine that he will be coming to Montreal to deal with Arlen Bruce and the Arlen Bruce situation. You think so? I do. I do. I'm pretty sure that's how that works. Well, let's hope we can get him right here in TSN 690 Studios Absolutely. for a live in-studio interview. That would be awesome. Oh, wouldn't that be fun? Yeah. Uh, and I think the only thing holding that up is that maybe Arlen Bruce is uh, 
somewhere in the States in the offseason, and it's easier for him to fly to wherever Arlen Bruce is. Mm-hmm. But um, there's no way that the CFL lets this go unpunished. Oh, no. There's no way. No. This guy is toast and should be. And what do you think is going to happen to him? If you were in charge I'd release of him. disciplining. I'd release him. The Alouettes? Yeah. Yeah. How do you say something like that and think that, man, eh, nobody's going to mind. I'm just going to go on with my career. I, you know. he, didn't, he didn't pull the Twitter account hack card, did he? No, not yet. It was okay. Instagram, and it was with a picture. Of was, him? Of him and his, and his woman, yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, a real head scratcher. That's all I got to say. It's not a head scratcher. It's just a... Well, no, it's a head want to blow off her. Maybe, That's what that is. Maybe, yeah. yeah. And and I'd be happier with just allowing him to not represent our city and wear a jersey with our city's name on it again. No. No, because, you know, we, we I, I hate I hate kind of uh, attaching ethics with geographical location, like I was talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, you have to say this this city is not a homophobic no, city. No, no, this is you know this city is a very tolerant city. Yeah, a more than and has been for years. There's you a know, reason way ahead. As a way, reason way that Davis 19, said it. There's a reason that in 1947 Jackie Robinson was in Brooklyn. That's right. And it was because he had a successful 1946 in Montreal and was sent here purposely because we already had a reputation for tolerance. Right. Right. And we continue to show that today. So why should a guy like that wear our logo? Which is why, whenever we discuss the charter in our province, it just makes me want to do this. Dave just banged his head on the table, like Guy Smiley on his piano. My head you okay? hurts. Now. Yeah. Well, that's what. Ha- you okay, Jimmy? Should we do Torben, or should we take a break and do Torben after the? Uh, we're going to do Torben now. Okay. All right. Well, let's bring let's in do our uh, our resident comedian. Get it's that always, rim shot ready. Always time for a laugh. Yeah, no shotguns this week. <laughs> My God, he threw off the shotgun last week. Who, Jimmy? By mistake. No. It was hilarious. Jimmy, that's it was awesome. Hilarious. You shot Torben. <laughs> Amazing. I think Spry actually got hit, to okay. be fair. Yeah. <laughs> that's why he's not here this right, week. I right. I got my old job back. <laughs> Follow him on Twitter at VanGuy. He joins us every Monday night. Hello, Torben Rolfson. Dave, Jay, Jimmy, shotgun whenever appropriate. a <laughs> boy. How are you, Torben? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm good, man. I'm good. How is the uh, Olympic vibe in uh, Vancouver? Oh, it's fantastic. It's amazing. Is is it actually existent? Yeah, it's like people could actually watch now and just sort of, instead of running around and being stressed out four years ago. <laughs> a number of people have mentioned that, and I felt that myself. Yeah, I was wondering kind of how the how the vibe is in, in like the Olympics afterwards in the city. I was in Vancouver, and it, yeah, it was a madhouse. Good luck getting yeah. into a bar to try and watch a game. Great. It's back to the couch. It's wonderful. <laughs> Sounds yeah. good. And so, great updates tonight, Jay. TSN, get this man on Sports Center. There you go. Thank you, Torben. There Appreciate you that, go. man. All right. But seriously, there's a fun void there since those guys left for L.A. Jay would fill that bill perfectly. Agreed. Agreed. Thanks, Replace man. Jay Onright with Jay Farrar. All right. <laughs> I was waiting for Jimmy to throw a drum fill in there. <laughs> or a gunshot, whichever or a came gunshot. first. Yeah. So what's going on for us? Uh, what, do you, what do you got for us this week, Torben? Well, before I get started, I just wanted to uh, wish you get well, Bob Costas. Yeah, eh? Right? Oh, man. Oh, Jay, you haven't noticed this? He's no. got At first, it was oh. uh, he had a terrible case of pink eye on the first night of the Olympics. And since then, he has obviously touched his eye and rubbed his face and touched the other eye because he is... I've never seen... Uh, members of Cypress Hill have eyes less red than him. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> He's morphing, right, he's morphing right in front of us. <laughs> is this how the zombie apocalypse starts? <laughs> he obviously missed those Sochi bathroom warning signs about letting water hit your face. <laughs> uh, best part of the opening ceremony is when Putin declared Russia the winner. <laughs> I'm not a big opening ceremonies guy, but I actually thought that was above average, although I was a bit disappointed. A thousand years of Russian history and culture and music, and we don't get Boney M's Rasputin? <laughs> not cool. <laughs> Those drones tracking the snowboarders down the run are part of Russia's extensive surveillance system. GoPro told their government they were invisible to the naked eye without these special goggles, which they sold them for an extra $10 million. <laughs> and Sochi hotels have received complaints about topless portraits of Putin in their rooms. I get this when I have overnight guests at my house, too. 
Anyone else wanted Eric Gay to win the downhill just to annoy Putin? Nice. I never even <laughs> thought about it. Wow. Nice. <laughs> Speaking of best spots, if President L.A. would get the Winter Games. If Gary, yeah, you know what? You're actually right. <laughs> that, that That's less of a joke and more of an, a, a very cogent point. Yeah, I only thought of that because it was 16 in Sochi yesterday, so it was on my mind, the balmy weather. You know, and just on a quick aside from that, they said that the skiers today were um, putting snow into their suits to warm up, that it was so hot. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. There you go. That would-be terrorist that was arrested wearing a hab sweater. I would have guessed someone wearing a hockey jersey demanding to be flown to Sochi would have had a Team USA Bobby Ryan on. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a counterfeit Koivu number 11, actually. That's right. <laughs> no, no, Jimmy, that's, that's actually... <laughs> it actually was a counterfeit, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, it was. You know, there's a fine line between terrorist camp and biathlon training. Yeah, I bet the music's different. <laughs> I like how when the biathletes com- collapse at the finish line, they don't get any medical attention. It's <laughs> <laughs> so true. When they're lying in the snow. <laughs> the only sport where that happens. No, that's what they do. They collapse. <laughs> I saw a list late last week of the first five events that were scheduled to finish on Saturday. One was, quote, men's 5,000 kilometer speed skating. <laughs> Come on. That's halfway to Vladivostok. <laughs> Great win for Canada's uh, Charles Amelin in the men's 1,500-meter short track. But that event would be better if at the 750-meter mark, the PA announcer said, change skating direction. The BVI started competing in Olympics in 1984 and have never medaled, which makes them the 30-year-old British Virgin Islands. <laughs> And finally, unnamed sources within the NFL talking about Michael Sam. So they were worried about being watched in the showers. Don't worry, you'll get used to it pretty quickly, say Sochi Hotel guest. <laughs> Dorman, great stuff as always. We'll catch up next week. Yeah, have a great night, Montreal. Thanks a lot. Awesome. Thanks so much. Follow him on Twitter at VanGuy. That's Torben Rolfson. Jay's got an update. I we'll do. be right back. Listening to The Kaufman Show with Dave Kaufman and Jay Farrar. Follow them on Twitter at The Kaufman Show and at JPUB Radio. It's like the show, but shorter, and you don't have to hear them bickering. is hard by the Black Crows for Alex Bilodeau on the Kaufman Show. What a feat. And people were trashing it because it hasn't been around long enough that people shouldn't be impressed by him defending the title. Have you seen how hard this damn sport is on your knees? You know, uh, we all know that this guy is a class act, right? Unbelievable. And his brother, what his a brother, story. His, oh. his brother is his inspiration. He's yeah. clearly the best brother you could ever have. <laughs> ever. Ever. Yeah. And and so yeah. is Alex. Makes us both look like the worst brothers of all time. No, of course. I hate my brother. I hate him. He doesn't <laughs> inspire me. Anyway, we get, you know, you know, but you know what it was for me? What? The moment that I knew Alex Bilodeau was a class act. It was it was a simple and small gesture that he did. And that's when he appeared afterwards mm-hmm. on CTV after he won his first gold medal. He appeared with Brian Williams. And I believe it was Darren Detition, who brought out some champagne. Okay. During his first, his post gold medal, day three in Vancouver. That's right. His family came out as well in the studio, including his brother. uh, uh, What's his brother? Frederick. No, it's. I'm not sure. Oh, geez, shame on me. Anyway, I think it's Frederick. Anyway, um, he brought his parents out and his brother out, and and as Darren Detition. Passes the champagne glass to him. Mm-hmm. He turns around and he gives it straight to his mother. Aw. Now, for somebody who works in a bar or a pub, 
This is normal. This is this is a normal reaction for somebody who has this kind of experience. He clearly right. does not work in a bar and a pub because people who work in a bar and a pub, you know, are doing sports center updates right now. <laughs> <laughs> and just this little gesture made me it's always the little things for me. For sure. And I realize I'll, I can judge what kind of person you are just by a simple gesture like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, like I was saying before, I, I took way more joy out of watching Marianne Saint-Gelais watch her boyfriend win than I did actually watching her right. boyfriend win. Right. I mean, everybody loves their brother, but does everybody want to give alcohol away? <laughs> Sacrifice, people. Sacrifice. Wow. wow. Well, some people drink too much as it is. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> but that's obviously not an example of that. No. And that may be just remnants of a Twitter war that I'm currently engaged in. Jay, we also, we're going to uh, finish tonight's show by re-airing another interview uh, um, just, you know what? I miss baseball, and we're constantly talking about this upcoming series at the Big O, which is six weeks away. If you don't have your tickets, you're, you're pretty much out of luck now. No, I know. I mean, they're, they're few and far between. When I you think go there's online only onesies. And, when you go online and only you look singles. for tickets, it's like four, section 434, row Q. Yeah. It's the ex-wives section. Nobody has sat in that seat since 1978. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody. You know what? I sat up there once with my dad. Like, And it's weird to say that I can only think of one time that I went to the Big O and it was so packed that we had to sit up top. Mm-hmm. And it was um, an old-timers day with the Dodgers. Dodgers really? were in town. Yeah. I don't remember and, that. Uh, and they had an old-timers game before the game. And I can't, I mean, the, the only, I have no idea what year it was. The only kind of uh, measuring stick I have is that I got Don Drysdale's autograph. Okay. And um, I think he died not too many years later. Right. And he passed away in Montreal when the Dodgers were in town. Okay. Um, obviously, you know, I mean, you spend half your life on the road. I guess the odds are pretty good. that. Mm. But, uh, yeah, I, you know what? I'll have to do some research into that. I wonder why the Olympic Stadium was so full that day. In the, maybe it was the 89 pennant race. Anyway, we're going to play you our interview with Rusty Staub from last year, which has a... Another one of those awesome moments at the end. Uh, I encourage you to take a listen. It's about 15 minutes long. The show will end with it. But um, as much of a star he was, and he was the first star, um, first baseball star in Canada, he's done so much work outside of baseball and so many amazing things. And the story at the end where he talks about what he's done for the NYPD and for the widows of... um, NYPD officers and and especially the work he's done after 9-11 is just incredible stuff. Once again, uh, just a huge, huge 24 hours in sports with this Michael Sam news, and uh, we wish him all the best. And in the meantime, go Canada, go. This is our uh, interview from the summer with Rusty Staub on The Kaufman Show. Aligned and ready to go, he was the first star of the Montreal Expos, and uh you know, it only only was in town for three years off that first run. Came back again in in '79, but it was it took three years. That was it. And Rusty Staub will forever be one of the faces of the franchise. And uh, he joins us tonight, number ten, Rusty Staub. Welcome to the Kaufman Show, sir. How are you? All right, Dave. Good to be here. Uh, it's great to have you here, and uh, we're looking forward to a little bit of a trip down memory lane uh, right now. I, I want to ask you. What were those heady days like uh, at the start? You had had uh, a brief, uh, I guess you'd played a year for Houston. You were um, one of the original draft picks of the Colt 45s and then uh, played a bit in Houston and then uh, came to Montreal in a trade that almost didn't happen. But what was it like, the excitement in the city? Because I'll tell you, for some of us, we just can't picture it. Well, I actually I actually was uh, I signed before the free agent draft started. I signed in 61, I think it's or three, and I played six years in Houston uh, before I came to Montreal. Um, obviously, uh, you know, you had two two great things. Okay, they had Charles Bronson as the owner, and Gene Mark as the manager, and they were two magnificent people, both in their own way. Uh, Charles treated everybody just magnificently. Uh, the, the team was first class all the way. Mark was a little tough, but great. Hmm. Um, I um, he was the smartest person I ever met in baseball. Gene Mock. Yep. So to have those two people kind of leading us, 
it was it was an amazing thing to see the excitement there was for baseball to come up there. I mean, I can remember going to uh, one of the big squares and uh, I was the something in the Ville. I was Placeville Marie. Placeville Marie. There it is. And uh, my God, I was just totally blown away by how many people kind of cold. And <laughs> yeah, we don't we don't care about, about that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it was April in Montreal. It could be anything. Yeah. <laughs> so I, uh, I I have to say that the reception we received and the way baseball was accepted uh, there, it, it actually was more like an, 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 an instead of just being a ball game, it was more like an event. And it was it was just great. And you never knew what was going to be happening in the stand. And I'm guessing that this was not something that you expected. What was your knowledge of Montreal before uh, being traded to the team? Uh, very little. You know, I mean, I never ever been uh, north of the border. Um, I I had no knowledge at all, really. You're uh, from None. New Orleans, right? Born and raised. Did you see any similarities between the two cities? I mean, beyond just the fact that there's French signs and French street names in New Orleans. Uh, New Orleans has a few people that speak, you know, kind of a broken, more Cajun French than, right. than, than Canadian and or Parisian French, which all seem to have their own lingo. And uh, I, um, I will say that I, you know, I, I had taken French grammar when you're at Jesuit High School, in school, which actually helped me a little because when I realized that I could not speak to a young child or, uh, you know, be able to do anything on television, I I started, you know, I, after the season was over the first year, I went to one of the language schools and I took 25 hour and a half lessons and, and you know, they wanted to tell me how to put the, the window was open and the the plate is on the top on the table. <laughs> I'm telling them, no, that's not what I need to know. <laughs> talk about baseball terms. I need to talk about ordering in a restaurant and having somewhat of a small conversation with all the media, you know, where I could say words and respond to them, you know, especially the ones that were on television where you could do something. You were known as the only player at the time to take that initiative, and I think it was, I mean, I don't think, I know that it was one of the things that endeared you to the fan base in the province of Quebec and really across the country. Did other players try to do that as well, or was it really just you? Well, I mean, after the after I left, I mean, I know Gary Carter tried a few things, and, uh, you know, I don't know how in-depth anybody went into it. Obviously, Bill Stoneman, who married a young lady from Montreal, uh, he I mean, he probably spoke French better than anybody because he stayed on and was the, the general manager there. He had to speak French. He had to pick it up. Uh, he might have been the only one if he did. I don't remember him speaking much French uh, to the press, but, uh, you know, going through the later years. Maybe I'm wrong, but he he, was, I know he was married to a, uh, a French-Canadian lady, and they, uh, my knowledge, they're still together. Well, or he didn't learn, and that's why he got along so well with the in-laws. <laughs> so, uh, all um, I know was uh, it was uh, just uh, an exciting city to be in. I I loved it. And of course, you know, you talk about this um, this day at Placeville Marie, and, and you know, I'll tell you, Rusty, I, I'm I'm young. My memories of the Expos were uh, started in the '80s and really started after Gary Carter was traded. But I've seen that black and white video of the uh, that opening. A party, if you want to call it, and there was a parade, and the fans. I think every player was announced, and it, it looked like a oh, mob. Yeah. You guys looked like it, it looked like the Beatles. It looked like Beatlemania, and it was it was wonderful. Hmm. It sure got our attention, you know, because we had we had no idea what to expect. You know, we had all been together in spring training. It was hot. We were going <laughs> up to the Muriel, and it was not hot. <laughs> Earlier, but we got lucky opening day. The first two days, it wasn't too cold. Well, opening day was, uh, yeah, well, I mean, just from looking at the pictures, it looked like it was a gorgeous day. And, and of course, yeah. brought home the victory the as well. And, well, our first games were in New York against the Mets. Right. When we came home, we, we opened against the Cardinals. That was the uh, the Dan McGinn home run, right? Or was that the game one in, in, um, in New that York? That was the first game. Dan okay. McGinn hit the first home run okay. in the history of the franchise. 
I think that day three of us hit home runs. Dan again, myself, and I'm just cannot remember who the other person is right now, but I know there was at least three of us hit home runs in that opening game. But Dan McGinn, of all people, a relief pitcher, hit the first. Which is wonderful. There was um, conversation earlier on on the afternoon show today about trades that have hurt. And uh, our afternoon show host, uh, Mitch Melnick, mentioned your you being traded, uh, the, the Jorgensen-Foley-Singleton uh, uh, trade, as one of the ones that, that hurt him when he was young. And I'm wondering from your side how that felt after three years of, of really building yourself up to being a national icon in this country, for it to be gone like that. How did that feel? Well, the truth is, uh, it's the only time in my entire career where they, they kind of caught me unawares. Every other time, I, I knew something was going to have to happen, or I was very vulnerable to be moved. Uh, that one that one actually caught me very unawares. Uh, it, I have to say I was, I was surprised. You know, whenever you're doing as much as I was doing, uh, you know, we had 150,000 children in that Young Expos Club. You know, I was traveling all over the country for the Bank of Montreal to, to go, you know, continue that movement of bringing baseball to everybody in the country because we were the only team then. Um, the, uh, I, I, I have to say that, yes, it hurt me. When they told me it hurt me, I realized I was going to be going to a ball club that could, you know, fight for a championship. They had a great pitching staff. I mean, they had won the whole thing in 1969. So, I mean, I uh, I knew all the, you know, playing in New York and what that could mean to any player who was successful, uh, which by the grace of God, it turned out to be that my career was successful there. And I, but I, I have to admit it, it, it hurt me when I, when I found out, yes. It also started a love affair with the city of New York, uh, a city that embraced you. And, and I mean, you, you're not only an iconic expo, but you're also known as one of the great Mets of all time. Well, you know, when I went there, I told them, I said, you know, I, I realize what a great opportunity this is for me. But I told them the truth. I said I was caught unawares. I, I was not. I, I had no idea this was happening. And, uh, you know, I was very involved in a lot of things up there. I said, don't get me wrong. I'm going to change my loyalties in my life. But, you know, the fact that I'm not jumping and screaming about coming to New York and having a chance to play for this ball club, uh, don't don't misinterpret my quietness right now. I said, because really, it's like I was stunned. I said, I will make this adjustment, and I will be a good player here, and I am sure if I play well, the, the fans will respond. We're in conversation with Montreal Expos legend Rusty Staub on the Kaufman Show. Dave Kaufman and Jay Farrar. Rusty, as, a, as upsetting as it was for you to have left the Expos in the early 70s, I guess there was a little bit of redemption when you came back in 1979. Uh, I also You did go back to the Mets afterwards. I remember, I'm a little bit older than Dave, and you got, of course, that famous standing ovation in 1979 upon your return. Later on, when you were playing with the Mets, I remember going to the games, and you were still getting standing ovations every time really? you, you would come back with the Mets. Oh, cool. And I remember seeing you very, I must have been about eight, seven, eight years old, and I remember, why are they clapping for a Mets player? I asked my <laughs> father. I said, that's, that's because that's La Grande Orange, he said. So it must you have been. You know, that, if, that name still means the world to me. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, God bless his soul. Uh, Teddy Blackman is the guy that called me Legrand Durant. He was the first media guy that he wrote into the paper. Hmm. Uh, we had had a big. I think it was after we had this long losing streak, and I had a great day against the Dodgers and caught this ball at the end of the game, almost impaled myself on the on the fence in Dodger Stadium. Uh, we we won, and I, I'm pretty sure it was the day after that that he wrote Legrand Durant something or other in the headline. So really, it was it was Ted Blackman that gave me the nickname. And did it stick in New York as well, or uh, did they go oh, back to just calling you by the nickname everyone. that you already had? <laughs> nope. nope, it's it's just that's been it. <laughs> that's great. Um, one thing I wanted to discuss with you, uh, you know, we're we're wrapping up right now with with Rusty Staub on the Kaufman Show, and uh, going back to New York, you've probably done more for that city than any other athlete through your fireman fund. And uh, I know that you've raised hundreds of millions of dollars 
for, uh, is it both police and firemen, or is it just firemen? It's the New York Police and Fire Widows and Children's Benefit Fund. And um, it's, a long, it's a long title. <laughs> well, and I won't shorten and it with an acronym. And we the policemen, the firemen, the, uh, the emergency service people under the umbrella of the fire department, and the port authority under the umbrella of the police department. What made you start this? Well, the truth is I was always involved. I had an uncle who died in the line of duty in New Orleans, Louisiana, and I always had an affinity with police officers because we met so many, you know, as youngsters. And uh, one day I was in my restaurant in New York, and this article came out where a police officer had been killed in the line of duty. He left a wife and three kids. The oldest was five. And it just hit me, you know, that maybe I should get up off my ass and go do something. And I did. You did, and and the face of that uh, of the organization must have changed drastically after nine eleven. Well, you know, we had about uh, three hundred and fifty families that were involved in the organization the first, you know, like twelve years, and uh, maybe even a little longer. But, uh, we have nine uh, eleven. There were four hundred and two people who were badged who died in the building. What is it, 346 firemen? And, uh, you know, there were some single officers who had no widows or children. You know, our, our group takes care of the widows and kids. We give a death benefit to the families. But, um, you know, we, we're, we were there to help the families after these guys were gone. Uh, in fact, that day we lost two ladies. We lost an emergency service lady and a, and a police lady. She was... Uh, I knew her husband. Her husband was a police officer. They, you know, it was, uh, I've seen him at some of our events. You know, well, geez, we just had our 29th picnic, hmm. okay, for these families once a year. So the next dinner is going to be our 28th. It's amazing how it's, it's just, by the grace of God, people in New York realize that, you know, there is a debt service to these families. You know, they're they're, they're making the ultimate sacrifice. This is not something that's, I mean, there's so many wonderful charities, but very few of them, somebody is dying so that your life is better. you got to at least have the responsibility to try to help their families. I think this is the uh, the definition of role model for all of you that are listening. Uh, you know, you finished uh, your career shy of, not far, but shy of 3,000 hits. You had an incredible uh, on-base percentage. Uh, I know that on your website, you, it actually says uh, Rusty Staub was not a great player. But you were a great teammate, and um, you know I don't even know what's on that website. I, <laughs> I think you just found out there, yeah. Rusty. <laughs> Time to fire your, your yeah. web designer. I guess I, I guess I'm not speaking very highly about myself. <laughs> well, I think it, it. You'll have to tell me more about what's on my website. <laughs> I think it's a testament to how humble you are, actually. Um, to think that the uh, one one of the greats in in our franchise history doesn't consider himself, or maybe he does. Maybe your web designer again. Maybe you need to have a conversation with somebody. But um, That's funny, I swear, I, you know, I'm not. I'm, I'm sorry. I have a Twitter and Facebook and all these other things. That's not part of my my game plan right now. Oh, you know, I just I, I think it's great for other people. I love it. Well, I'll tell you, there's a lot of uh, do. a lot of nice things being said about you on Twitter right now, Rusty. And uh, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us tonight. It was a real honor. Guys, I loved it up there. You know that. Good. We'll uh, hopefully be in touch down the road. Thank you again for your time, sir. All right, guys. For Jay Farrar, I'm Dave Kaufman. Thanks for listening tonight. We had a good time on The Kaufman Show.
the shit with miniature Tim if he needs a tune then I'll write one for him we like the same books and we like the same sounds there's a reason that I love this town I played a show in Kelowna last year said pick it up Joel we're dying in here picture one hand clapping then picture half that sound There's a reason that I hate that town If you saw my bed In the early days Then you understand Why we moved away But you hold a grudge anyway Because it's fun Face down in our soup, some French restaurant. I saw Riviere de Lou last night at the tour. We burnt the place to the ground. There's a reason that I love this town. There's a reason that I love this town. There's a reason that I love this town. sound like 